Section 7 of The Heroines of History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine H. The Heroines of History by John S. Jenkins. Section 7. Isabella of Castile. Part 3. Alfonso was so much disappointed at the loss of his bride that he determined to put his former threat of entering a monastery in execution. The one he fixed upon was situated in a lonely spot on the shores of the Atlantic, but the realization of this Quixotic fancy was prevented by his death shortly after Joanna took the veil. The same year, 1479, chronicled the death of John of Aragon, thus bequeathing an independent crown to Ferdinand. This event strengthened the security of Castile, and cemented the various provinces into a whole that was soon to stand foremost among nations. When tranquility was at last restored to a people who for years had suffered the disasters of war, one would suppose they would willingly have been cradled in the arms of peace and prosperity but the restless, turbulent spirit of the times required a channel for its resistless flood that would otherwise undermine the foundations of a throne slowly gaining steadiness and solidity after its long rocking. The ambition of the chivalry of Spain was enthusiastically directed towards the prosecution of the war against the Moors, while the zealous clergy were absorbed in the new project of establishing the Inquisition in these dominions, rapidly becoming more powerful. The Jews, who were a numerous, wealthy, and important class, had incurred the hatred of the Castilians both on account of their heretical belief and because of the almost irretrievable indebtedness of a large share of the nobility to these moneylenders. Since the avowed purpose of the Inquisition was the conversion or condemnation of this unfortunate people, both the Castilians and Aragonese submitted to its otherwise detested establishment, hoping thus to escape their extensive liabilities, not foreseeing that its unlimited power might finally initiate the whole nation in its mysterious horrors. The clergy were eager for the work, and the Pope willingly sanctioned measures which, by the confiscation of the estates of the accused, would pour immense wealth into his coffers. Isabella, whose tenderness of heart revolted at the barbarous design, withheld her consent till, blinded by the united representations of advisers, in whom she reposed confidence, and actuated by a bigotry which owed its place in her otherwise perfect character to the early teachings of her confessor, Thomas de Torquemada, a proud, intolerant man of unrelenting cruelty, she at length permitted the appointment of two Dominican friars in September 1480, who were ordered to repair to Seville and commence operations immediately. This appointment was not made, however, till after Isabella had induced them to employ milder means that failed, of course, in the hands of fiery, overbearing monks. An edict was issued, ordering the arrest of all persons suspected of heresy, some of the proofs of which were wearing cleaner linen on the Jewish Sabbath than on other days of the week, having no fire in the house the preceding evening, giving Hebrew names to children, a whimsical, cruel provision, since, by an enactment of Henry the Second, 
they were prohibited the use of christian names under severe penalties the cells of the convent of st paul where the dreadful tribunal commenced its murderous deeds were quickly filled and the number of arrests multiplied so rapidly that they were obliged to remove its operations to the fortress of triana in the suburbs of seville removed from the immediate supervision of the citizens the infatuated brutal monks carried on the revolting work instituting mock trials which gave the accused no opportunity of defence but confronted him with witnesses concealed beneath black cowls and judges enveloped in dark robes the scene was rendered more gloomy and depressing by the dimly lighted chambers where the sittings were held the victim with no hope of escape however innocent was often condemned through the machinations of some deadly but disguised enemy hurried away and subjected to most excruciating tortures in dungeons too deep for their cries of agony to reach any sympathizing ear in the meantime isabella who devoutly believed this to be a pious work was occupied in preparations for the moorish war in accordance with the promise she made on ascending the throne and with the same bigoted zeal that actuated her in the forced conversion of her own subjects ferdinand engaged in the project with commendable activity under the cloak of his most catholic majesty but with the secret gratification of adding to his dominions a wealthy and beautiful region acknowledged as the eden of spain its position too embracing the most important fortifications along the coast caught the covetous eye of the king and probably had an influence upon isabella though her prominent idea was the conversion of the infidels the moorish kingdoms which had formerly extended over a large portion of spain had been reduced by successive conquerors to a narrow district of seventy miles in breadth lying between the mountains and sea and stretching along the coast one hundred and eighty miles the inhabitants were still subject to their enemies being obliged to pay an annual tribute which had ceased during the reign of henry the second and his successors in this interval they had become prosperous amassed great wealth beautified their possessions with every known luxury and cultivated the arts and sciences to a surprising degree ingenious and inventive they originated much that has been universally adopted by mankind to them we owe the first manufacture of paper and from them came the equally world-appropriated invention of gunpowder astronomy philosophy and mathematics made rapid strides under their direction though perverted to the uses of astrology magic and the untiring search after the elixir of life and the philosopher's stone literature and poetry were successfully cultivated but overburdened with legends and fairy tales that have since been inwoven in the poetry of all nations the renowned city of granada was situated nearly in the centre of the kingdom upon two hills and an intervening valley one of the hills being crowned by the fortress of alcazaba the other by the palace of alhambra magnificent and fanciful in its architecture adorned within by richly tinted walls musical fountains perfumed gardens and gay with gorgeously dressed attendants now a pile of ruins whose history seems but the magical creation of an arabian romance noble palaces and lofty houses abounding in oriental colonnades and graceful porticos 
crowded the city. It was famous for its gallant warriors, who proudly boasted an army of twenty thousand men within its walls. Around the city extended the Vega, or plain of Granada, luxurious with vineyards, abundant in citron and orange groves that perpetually blossomed, and watered by the Senil that flowed in a thousand diverted channels through these enchanting gardens. Upon one side of the plain extended a long range of mountains, whose snowy peaks rose like sentinels along the frontiers, while the dark Mediterranean dashed against the rocky battlements with which nature had provided its extreme southern boundary. Populous cities, towns, and impregnable fortresses were numerous in this fertile kingdom, which was regarded by the Moors with a passionate devotion, revealed in the romantic ballads and legends that immortalized its beauty and glory. The king, Muli Abin Hassan, was an old man, yet one who retained the fiery spirit of his youth and the natural vigor of his mind. He still held the reins of government with a firm, unyielding hand, but was an undisputed tyrant in his domestic relations. To this haughty monarch, Ferdinand and Isabella sent an embassy as soon as their purpose was decided, demanding the payment of long arrears of tribute due to Castile. He received the embassy in the halls of the Alhambra, and proudly defied the demand. "'Tell your sovereigns,' said he, "'that the kings of Granada, who used to pay tribute to the Castilian crown, are dead. Our mint at present coins nothing but blades of scimitars and heads of lances.' The indignant ambassadors returned to Castile, while Aben Hassan, fully aware of the vast preparations making against him, determined to open hostilities himself. The fortress and town of Zahara, negligently guarded because of its impregnable situation upon craggy heights, was fixed upon for the first onset. An inconsiderable number of valiant Moors scaled the almost inaccessible walls of precipitous rock and under cover of a raging tempest and the darkness of night, surprised the slumbering inhabitants, massacring such as resisted and carrying the rest into slavery. The news of this capture roused the wrath and revenge of all Spain, as though it had not intended to commit a like aggression. Ponce de Leon, the Marquis of Cadiz, noted for his personal prowess, was selected to conduct an army of five thousand foot and horse into the enemy's country, though with some especial design, his soldiers were kept in ignorance, they expecting some sally along the frontiers. They performed a fatiguing and perilous march over the mountains that separated them from the kingdom of Granada, the way being rendered more dangerous by moving only at night in order to conceal their approach. This feat accomplished, the Marquis announced to his astonished soldiers that they were within half a league of the fortress of Alama, in the very heart of the Moorish dominions. This fortress and town, of the same name, were, like Sahara, situated on a rocky eminence, washed at its base by a deep river on one side, and screened on the other side from any powerful attack by the mountains. Its apparent security of position lulled the vigilance of the sentinels, and enabled a detachment of the Spanish army to scale the walls unseen, put the garrison to the sword, and throw open the gates to the remaining troops. The town was captured, 
after a brave resistance from the Moors, who fought desperately this first battle for their beautiful land, their homes, and those endeared ones who were threatened with death or hopeless slavery. The news of this daring exploit, almost within sight of Granada, struck terror into the hearts of the people, who deplored the evil the tyrant king was bringing upon them. The astrologers shook their heads, and said the stars denoted the downfall of the empire, while the poets mournfully sang, Woe is Alhama, and women and children rushed through the streets, tearing their hair, and wildly calling upon their king to stay the destruction which threatened to overwhelm them. But Aben Hassan, roused by this defiance of the Castilians thrown in his very teeth, and deaf to the lamentations and reproaches of his subjects, made hasty preparations to retake his captured city. A large army, fierce for vengeance, assembled under the walls of Alhama, and laid siege to the city. The conquerors held unflinchingly what they had so perilously grasped, unintimidated by the fast exhausting means found in the city, or the long protracted, fierce attacks of the Moors, rapidly thinning their numbers. In this extremity, the Marquis succeeded in conveying intelligence to his wife, who, alarmed for the safety of her husband, quickly dispatched a message to the most powerful neighboring chief, the Duke of Sidonia, to fly to his relief. This nobleman was a deadly enemy of the Marquis, but with chivalrous honor obeyed the confiding frankness of the demand, and with his speedily gathered retainers, amounting to fifty-five thousand, set out for the Moorish dominions. The tidings of the victory and ensuing danger of the Spanish army at Alama reached Ferdinand and Isabella at Medina del Campo. After a public procession and thanksgiving in the cathedrals, Ferdinand dispatched orders to the duke, who had already begun his march, to await his presence. But he, unwilling to lose a moment, disobeyed the command and pushed on to the rescue of his countrymen. The first announcement of their approach to Alama was the sudden retreat of the Moors into Granada, a movement the besieged could not comprehend till, presently, they saw lances glittering and banners floating among the defiles of the mountains. With shouts of joy they went forth to meet the brilliant array, the Marquis and Duke embracing cordially, in presence of both armies, forever burying the animosity that had stained their family escutcheons with the blood of many generations. They triumphantly entered the city together. In accordance with Isabella's directions, the cross was reared where the crescent had hung for centuries, the mosques were converted into cathedrals, and the belongings and decorations of Catholic worship displaced the sacred utensils of Moorish rites. An exquisitely embroidered cloth, the work of the queen's own hands, was laid upon the newly erected altar in the principal mosque of Alama, thus consecrating to religion what had been gained by rapacious bloodshed. A stronghold now being secured in the very midst of the kingdom of Granada, Isabella determined to prosecute the war more vigorously than ever. With her sanction, Ferdinand summoned an army, which, it was found, lacked sufficient supplies of ordnance and ammunition, in consequence of want of means, to incur further expense. Not listening to the advice of more experienced men, and burning with a desire for military renown, 
he persisted in entering upon a campaign with this ill-equipped army. The soldiers caught the dispirited bearing of the leaders, and, full of evil forebodings, dejectedly followed the royal standard, carried before them to the Cathedral of Cordova, to receive a blessing, and thence on their long march and toil over the rugged mountains. Laxa, a thriving city on the banks of the Senil, so completely surrounded by inaccessible rocks as to be designated a flower among thorns, was the first point of attack. The army, fatigued with their rough march, and with no ardor in the enterprise, poorly withstood the wily assaults of the Moors, who, practicing the Arabian and Indian tactics, concealed themselves in crevices or behind rocks, and suddenly sprang upon their astonished foes, darted fatal showers of poisoned arrows among their ranks, then fell upon them with never-failing scimitars and deadly knives. A complete rout ensued, and the remnant of Ferdinand's army returned to Cordova in a disconsolate plight. Isabella was mortified at such a signal defeat. She fully resolved to adopt measures proportioned to the importance of the undertaking, and not thus allow the fame of Castilian arms to be tarnished. The court removed to Madrid at the beginning of the year 1483, a year remarkable for the death of the Archbishop of Toledo, who, after his disgrace, retired to his own palace, where he pursued the study of alchemy with such infatuation as exhausted even his princely revenues. This year was also notable for the appointment of Thomas de Torquemada, Inquisitor General of Castile and Aragon, investing him with full powers to conduct the operations of the Holy Office, powers which he exercised with the utmost vigor and cruelty, enforcing every imaginable torture with horrible precision. Isabella permitted its continuance, notwithstanding the serious drains it produced upon the working classes as well as the nobility. No one was above a suspicion that, without warning, he might be snatched away from the fireside, from the busy loom or the plying hammer, with a suddenness and impenetrable secrecy that seemed the work of imps of Satan, carrying their victims to subterranean halls and placing them before malicious, cowled tribunals, which consigned them to a frightful, secret death in the depths of the fortresses and castles occupied by the inquisitors. Had Isabella been left to her own judgment, she would have used milder means to root out heresy from her kingdom. But actuated by her early teachers, who impressed her with the duty of thorough action, and influenced by her confessor Talavera, she countenanced the proceedings of the Inquisition. Talavera, though not possessing the cruelty of Torquemada, was equally austere and haughty. Upon his first attendance upon the queen as confessor, he remained seated while she knelt before him. "'It is usual for both parties to kneel,' said she. "'No,' replied he. "'This is God's tribunal. I act here as his minister, and it is fitting that I should keep my seat while your highness kneels before me.' This is the confessor I wanted, she said afterwards in commenting upon it. What wonder that with such spiritual guides, in whom she reposed the greatest confidence, her doubts should be overruled. Her resolution to execute the war of Granada on a larger scale 
was soon made manifest. In opposition to the wishes of Ferdinand and the chief leaders, she used energetic measures to raise a new army. Ashamed to be outdone by a woman, the old spirit of chivalry was roused again, and they now eagerly offered their services to the courageous queen. The treasury being exhausted by the various objects that drew largely upon it, the Pope was applied to, who permitted funds to be raised out of the ecclesiastical revenue, and also issued a Bull of Crusade, which granted indulgences to all who should take up arms against the infidel. Magnificent preparations were made with expectations of a certain success that seemed to be warranted by the scenes of civil faction which Granada presented. The Sultana Aixa was jealous of a beautiful Greek slave, of whom the old king was undisguisedly fond, and fearing lest the succession of her own son, Boabdil, should be superseded by other heirs, she represented her wrongs to the people, already rebellious under the tyrannical government. These intrigues were discovered, for which Aben Hassan caused her to be imprisoned in the highest tower of the Alhambra. With the aid of her attendants, she effected the escape of herself and son by tying scarves and shawls together, upon which doubtful support they descended to the ground unharmed, and were welcomed by a large share of the quickly assembled inhabitants. A contest soon commenced, which stained the halls of the Alhambra with blood, and drove from it the tyrant king, who took shelter in Malaga, a city that remained loyal to him, leaving Boabdil to occupy the throne. While the kingdom of Granada was thus weakened by domestic feuds, and unable to rally unitedly, the Castilians decided to strike a blow at Malaga. The gallant army passed out of the gates of Antiquera, exultant and eager for the victory of which they were confident. The following day they arrived at the tortuous defiles of the Axarquia, dragging heavy artillery and baggage through the rocky windings with great difficulty. During the slow ascent, the inhabitants of the villages among the mountains had time to escape with their effects and spread the alarm through the lower country. End of Section 7